All right. I'd like to welcome everyone. We have a special edition today of uh, This Week in Intelligent Investing. Unfortunately, John and Elliot could not be with me, but I have a very special guest. I'm here with William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, a book that I'm sure many of you have read. If you haven't, uh, you'll be learning a lot more about it today, and it certainly has uh, my recommendation. So my, my kind of rule of thumb with books is I have so many books that I want to read. I generally won't read them until at least two or three people have recommended them to me. I use that as my, as my first pass filter. And so in about I think it was probably June of this year, uh, one of the best investors nobody's heard of, and he prefers it that way, so I won't name him, came to me and said, hey, I've read this book. Have you read it yet? And I said, no, that's really interesting. And so I kind of put it on my list, but I hadn't gotten to it yet. And then uh, no less a person than John Mihaljevic, the proprietor of, of this podcast, uh, sent me a copy of it a few weeks later. And I said, okay, that's enough for me. So I bumped it right to the top of my list. So William, I thought it was a great book. Congratulations. I thought it was wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you. It's a, it's a delight to be here with you. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of John and, and everything that he does. So a, a, anytime I can be involved with MY Global, your community, anything, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to do so. So thank you. It's the first time you and I have chatted. And I'm, I'm exactly uh, like, like you with books, you, you, you come with, with John's blessing. I'm like, yep, it's got to be good. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's great to have those filters with people you just trust unequivocally where you know whatever they recommend, it will be good. So um, by way of background, William uh, wrote this book. Before that, he wrote The Great Minds of Investing, which came out, I guess, six or seven years ago. You've now kind of made a career, it seems, out of, uh, of being sort of an in-depth profile writer on, on the best investors in the world. Before that, you were actually at a, at a series of journalistic uh, endeavors, including Time Magazine, which I want to talk about. Uh, Eaton, Oxford, Columbia Journalism School, you know, the, the background is pretty interesting. So I guess what I'm curious about starting with is why did you write this book? Was this kind of the magnum opus of all the work you've put together interviewing these, these high profile people over the last 20 or 30 years? Or what was the impetus for, for doing this? Yeah, I looked back and I realized I've interviewed some extraordinary people going back really to my 20s, when I started to, I'm now 53. So, so I started interviewing people like Sir John Templeton and Fires Seraphim and Peter Lynch and Jack Bogle. Um, when I was a young journalist, Bill Ruain, these people who never really, in some cases, never talked at all to the press. And they were extraordinary people. I would go off and I'd interview Michael Price, for example, about his mentor who had influenced him, or right. I'd interview Bill Miller about, um, who his greatest influences were. And there were people like Ludwig Wittgenstein and William James, the philosopher. And, and so I just became really fascinated by these people. And, and then when I worked on The Great Minds of Investing, there, it was a collaboration with an extraordinary photographer, Michael O'Brien. And so I was writing these relatively short profiles that were 800, 850 words. And I met more extraordinary people through that. And so then I started looking back and thinking, okay, I. I've met some of the greatest thinkers in the investment world, not just great investors, but extraordinary minds. And I thought, well, what, what have I actually learned from them? And I started thinking, well, these aren't just extraordinary money managers. They're not just people who are able to kind of line their pockets brilliantly. There's, there's this elite group of people who, A, they defy gravity by beating the market of many years. But B, they have extraordinary worldly wisdom, to use Munger's phrase, which I think he borrowed from John Maynard Keynes. These are people who are an incredible filter for thinking about, as Charlie would say, what works and what doesn't work and why. And so what I wanted to do was to say, OK, if I, if I go back and I draw on the greatest interviews that I did 
over the, my career, these things where I interview someone like Bill Ruin 20 years ago, or Peter Lynch or, or, or Jack Bogle. And then I go big on all of the most interesting people that I can interview now. I could come up with something really pretty special where I can actually synthesize the most important things that I think we need to learn from these people. So I started, I started to do things like arrange to go to India with Monish Pabrai, for example. So I'd written about him briefly for, for The Great Minds of Investing. But I then went for five days with him to India. And I traveled with him to Omaha before with him, Guy Steer, for the, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And I'd interviewed him in Irvine, California at his office there. And suddenly I'm like, okay, so if I really want to do a deep dive and write about cloning um, and why the idea of cloning is so interesting and how it applies to every other area of, of life, I can actually just concentrate on that for months. And likewise, I can go back and interview Howard Marks for another three hours. And, right. uh, and, and so, so I, I just kept doubling down on the most interesting, thoughtful people that I'd encountered in the investing world over the last 25 years. Uh, and, then, and then I just was trying to distill in my own mind and for readers what you can learn from these extraordinary people, not only about how to get rich, but actually about how to think better and much more counterintuitively, actually how to live more wisely. Because if you, if you, if you think about people like Charlie Munger or Howard Marks or, or Monish, they're extraordinary guides to what, what actually constitutes a successful and abundant life and where things like morality and ethics fit into an abundant life and how to work with other people and how to deal with your, your failures or adversity or difficulty. So in a way, what, what made this book really exciting, but also really overwhelming to work on was that I actually had this kind of wildly ambitious hope for it, where, where I was really trying to share everything that was most important that I had, that I had learned over the years. And then I think partly because um, then we got to this period where COVID struck, which was sort of right towards the end of the book project, because I took about the, the book probably took me about four or five years. But towards the end, I started to have these kind of intimations of my own mortality and to think, well, God, this is an uncertain world. I don't know how, how long I'm going to live. Let, let, and so I just kept thinking, let me create something that's of enduring value. So, and so I think sometimes you see people writing books and you have this sense that they're doing it kind of to boost their brand or to to make a killing or something, you know, exactly. which is always the kind of futile hope with, with book writing. I really, there was something kind of um, ridiculously ambitious and grandiose about it, where I actually, I actually was trying to write something that would be of enduring value. And I was thinking of a, of a there's a great novelist, a wonderful novelist called Ford Maddox Ford, who was very close to people like Joseph Conrad. And he wrote an enormous number of books. And there was, there, there was one point where He's, he, sat, he said, I sat down at the age of 40 to show what I could do. And he wrote this book, The Good Soldier, that's one of the great novels of the last century. And, and so to some extent, I thought, I've spent so much of my life editing stories for magazines, writing stories. I've done so much ephemeral stuff that was sort of superficial, where I was just kind of trying to make a living and get, get by. Let me try to do something that's really worthwhile. It might have enduring value, and so uh, you know your readers will probably look at it, and be, your listeners will look at the book and be like, "God, I can't believe how how trite and superficial it is." That's what he could sit down and do. But that that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to create something of enduring value. 
No, that makes that makes total sense. And one of the things that I'm most interested then is is how you went about doing it. I mean, you obviously pulled together disparate sources over many, many years. What kind of tips and techniques did you have? I was fascinated to read. I don't know if you read it, but Bob Caro, the, the famous biographer, wrote this book called Working a few years ago, mm. where he went into painstaking detail about how he actually completed the work and the way he took notes and the way he researched. What were some of your tips and tricks that you employed for this? Did you use a lot of audio recording, written notes? Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you keep it straight? Because you're in the presence of these brilliant people. It's probably hard to keep up in some sense with what they're thinking. And it's probably hard to remember years later what you were thinking in the moment. So what do you do to contextualize it all and remember it? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Caro is extraordinary, by the way. His, his Lyndon Johnson biographies yeah. are just consummate, consummate biographies. Um, that's one of the enormous problems is when you're when you're writing something really in depth and you're really spending a lot of time interviewing people. Well, amount of material and it's not tidy. My, my nothing, nothing about my life seems very tidy. Everything is a little <laughs> disorderly. My mind's all over the place. And so even there would be things where I would, I would be like, okay, so I'm writing about Peter Lynch. Where the hell is my transcript of my interview with Peter Lynch from all those years ago? Uh, yeah. You know, those sort of things that if you were if you were a hyper efficient sort of accountant type, right. uh, would all be beautifully filed. I would be like, God, I, I don't know. Um, but in a way, that um, the scatteredness of my mind is also why the book is full of things from people like. Um, you know, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Shakespeare and stuff like that, because because also the fact that my mind is all over the place means I've read an extraordinary amount of stuff and I'm seeing these weird connections. So if I'm writing about something like cloning, um, which is this idea from Monish of, of basically reverse engineering the best that other people have already figured out and, and then replicating it, um, I'm looking but all of these different fields. I'm looking at Marcus Aurelius and I'm thinking, oh, look, he's cloning. Look at these 16 or 17 people he writes about at the start of his book. Sure. Um, he's essentially cloning their virtues. And then I'm reading um, an extraordinary memoir by Oliver Sacks. And I'm thinking, wait a second, he's cloning this great psychologist and author, A.R. Luria. And then I read A.R. Luria, who is this great Russian psychologist. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. He's cloning Walter Pater, who is this 19th century right. writer of a book called Imaginary Portraits. So that scatteredness is a real problem and at the same time a real virtue. And I think that's often the case with everything that we do. It's like our, our greatest flaws are also often our greatest virtues and vice versa. And so for me, there was always this sense that, that the topic was kind of flying away from me, that I didn't have control. And so what I was doing is I was... I. I, I was gathering string over a long period of time where I would say, okay, I know that cloning is going to be a really important idea. And anytime I would encounter anything to do with that, I would kind of put it in, in a, in a Microsoft file. Um, Cause I'm super untechnical. And so uh, I have no technological skills at all. So, and I would think of these in really unromantic terms as a kind of bucket. So I'd think, okay, Here's my cloning bucket. And so for each chapter, I think there ended up being nine or 10 chapters, including the introduction and epilogue. I would just be gathering stuff and putting it in that bucket. And so then, for example, if I'm writing about um, 
Charlie Munger, for example, there's a very long chapter about Charlie Munger and how, how, to, how to avoid stupidity, basically how to reduce standard stupidities. Everything I come across in all the books that I'm reading and all the interviews, I'm just putting in there. And then when I, and then I write an immensely long outline, a ridiculous, embarrassingly long outline for the chapter where I'm synthesizing everything. So I'm thinking, oh, that's really interesting. Not only is Charlie reducing standard stupidity in all of these ways, but Ken, Ken Schubenstein, who's an extraordinary investor and extraordinary thinker who actually quit the investment business and became a, a, a neurologist, has figured out all of these very practical workarounds um, to deal with the um, with all of these mental glitches that we had. So then I would put that in there. And then I would I would have interviewed Fred Martin, who's an extraordinary investor, who's not, not as widely known or appreciated as he should be. And I would be thinking, well, Fred actually was, was on a destroyer during the Vietnam War. And he saw right before he was in charge of, of this destroyer, he saw these other young lieutenants um, cause a catastrophe in which something like, I think it was about 70 people died. And so he was obsessed with this idea of reducing stupidity because he'd seen it in Vietnam. And then, and then he brought that mindset of vigilance um, from, from the Vietnam War into his career as an investor. And so I'm kind of putting all of this stuff in this one bucket. And then I'm kind of synthesizing it in the outline. And then it just takes months to write, to work through yeah, these sure. ideas. And so something like the chapter on Nick Sleep and Case Sakaria, his partner who'd never really been interviewed or talked about how they beat the market by 804 percentage points over 13 years, that probably took me about five months. So that was based on multiple interviews with, with Nick Sleep, um, a long interview with Zach as well. Then, then I go back and I fact check in great depth with them, which, which means that you actually have another opportunity not just to check the facts, but actually to deepen your 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 interview with them because you're saying, okay, is this right about what happened then? Right. And they'll say, well, actually, it's even more interesting. What really happened is this, and and so it's kind of an extra an extra interview, and so so I'm just going back and back and back and deepening it, and so, and so in in some ways it's a it's a crazy approach where you're just gathering more and more and more. So think think of think of me coming back from five days in India with Monish, and I just have notebook after notebook right. of notes from him, all in my terrible illegible illegible handwriting. Then I have a bunch of recordings from times I've met with him in Irvine and elsewhere, and then I actually called again, and I'm like, let's talk some more specifically about cloning and who else cloned. Like, and, and so then he starts talking about well, so Singapore was actually cloning. Um, China, or oh, China was actually cloning Singapore. So think of the ways they did this, or think about this company that's cloning this company. And, um, and so it's a sort of, it's a ridiculously time-consuming approach. But what I was doing was I was sort of thinking, again, in an absurdly overambitious way, I was thinking, I want to write the best thing that's ever been written about Monish or the best thing that's ever been written about cloning. So there's really, I, I'm not saying this to be sort of self-congratulatory or anything. It's like, there's a sort of ambition to it where you're thinking, I want to really fully explore the implications of cloning and really tell his story with a richness that hasn't been told. And so, so you're devoting maybe 11,000 words to it. It's big. It's a, it's yeah. a lot. 
Um, so, so yeah, so so I was going for kind of deep, deep intimacy with these people where you're really getting inside their minds. You're not, sometimes with journalism, there's a tremendous emphasis on objectivity and impartiality. And you yeah. sort of feel, well, if I'm, if I'm writing about Monish, I've got to attack him as well to show that I'm balanced. I'm not doing that. I, I'm trying to get deeply inside the mind of an extraordinary person and say, this is how he thinks. This is what I've learned from him. This is what I think you can learn from him. And, and so I'm working through those ideas in my own mind and, and really trying to explain, um, this is what it means. This is, this is what you can take from Monish. And, and so one of the peculiarities of the book also is that every chapter has a kind of, a kind of summary section at the end, but it's not, it's not like a tedious summary section that you see in some books where you're just like this point, this point, this point, this point. It's like, it's pushing it to the next level where you're saying, ah, that's what he taught me about, about cloning. And, and so, for example, in the cloning chapter, there's a wonderful nuance that comes from my friend Guy Spear saying, yeah, it's really important to replicate what people who are smarter than you and wiser than you have, have already figured out. But it really has to be in tune with your, with your own temperament and character and talents. And that's such an important nuance. Or, for example, Guy then read the whole manuscript before it was published, and he said to me, I really worry when, when you use Monish's phrase, shameless cloner, to describe himself, that you're underestimating both the ferocity and intelligence with which he's cloning. And so then I would include that in a footnote. So there's this kind of constant layering on of more detail and more nuance. We're really trying to write something that's kind of true and complex and nuanced. And, and that's what makes it so difficult as a writer to just I'm, keep control. I'm sure of it that. is. Yeah. And I actually thought the footnotes as an aside, I thought the footnotes and the end notes were actually really good because that's kind of how my mind works too. And I wonder, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you have like the perfect classical training, right? Eaton, Oxford, Columbia Journalism School. But then you mentioned the non-objective perspective, you know, the footnotes and the end notes. I, I, I would imagine some of your journalism professors would probably push back on that, but I found them to be totally wonderful. But going back oh, to the, I, I, they're just a rabbit hole. You can go down for days. I mean, I've read probably the vast, vast majority of the books that you referenced in there, but there were, I've already got a list running of several books and things that I haven't read that you pointed out that just sound incredible that I've missed. And that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, if you can capture all the good things and then still point out new things to somebody who's read most of it, I think that's the sign of really good deep work. So I, I think the, the, the end notes alone would be, I'm, I'm probably going to include it in my MBA class next year is just, you know, here's, here's how you do deep research. Oh, here's, that's some, lovely to hear. here's an, here's an endless stream of reading material that you could sign up, you know, and so I think it's, it's great, but I am curious the, about the non The end notes are very idiosyncratic. The end oh, notes are, were sure. me sort of saying, I'm not going to give you these, this list of sources so I can show who I interviewed and what right. I did and, and stuff right. like that, partly because I'm too disorganized actually to have but good it, exactly, records of that. It fits your personality, right? Yeah. It's, it's in sync with who you are. So, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do instead is say, if you want to learn more about this, um, there's a really cool book on this. And, and, and so there's something exactly. deeply idiosyncratic about those footnotes. Cause also what I'm saying is I I'm putting in things where, where I'm thinking there's someone out there 
who's going to read that there's a thing called the self-compassion workbook by this woman who's an extraordinary professor at, um, at the University of Texas, I think, in, in Austin. And it's going to change their life. Hmm. And I'm thinking there's somebody who's going to read that this guy, Daniel Ingram, wrote this, this extraordinarily hardcore guide to, to Buddhist Dharma. And it's going to change their life. And that was just something that Josh Tarasoff, a really fine hedge fund manager, who's a friend of mine, had mentioned to me. And I read it and I thought it was extraordinary. And so I'm just dropping it in a couple of sentences. because I'm like, that could, be a, that, could, that could be a thread that somebody pulls on that, that kind of, uh, to mix metaphors, it'll just lead them in a whole different direction that's really spectacular. And I was talking to my mother about this a couple of weeks ago. My mother has a, um, has a family friend in London who's literally read, I think, 71 of the books that I mentioned in wow. the notes on additional sources and resources. And you know, he's a guy who's got a first-class degree from Oxford um, and wants to become an epidemiologist. And he's just gone down this rabbit hole yeah. and has given himself this incredible education. Yeah. And there's something really wonderful. So, so yeah, I love the fact that, that certain people fall down that rabbit hole. They will. No, people will definitely fall down this rabbit hole. And in terms of lasting, you know, permanence, you mentioned trying to create something of lasting value. I always tell people that's the best contribution that any good journalist or writer can contribute. It's just like a teacher, right? We all have that one teacher that can, you look back on your middle school, high school, college years, it changed your life. And the same, I think, is true for a lot of us in reading books. I always tell the people or tell people when they ask, you know, I, I was in business school and didn't know the first thing about investing. And I read Roger Lowenstein's book, The Making of an American Capitalist, which you referenced mm. several times in footnotes and endnotes, which I think is still one of the best business books I've ever read. And yeah. it changed my whole life right there. I mean, it, it immediately encapsulated everything that didn't make sense. So I think that was that was wonderful. But one thing I want to circle back on was you mentioned it earlier and you mentioned it on another podcast I was listening to uh, on background about this non-objective perspective. And you actually put in the end notes that you limited this to investors that you like and admire. And I wonder if that was a, a conscious choice early on, or you, you kind of mentioned that you didn't have a great initial run-in with John Templeton. And, and so I'm, I'm curious as to how you decided to do that, who maybe if you're, you're willing to share was cut on that basis or, or just how you kind of arrived to that perspective to not be like you said, a New York Times writer trying to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly, you're trying to tell it from one perspective that's yours, not a purely objective perspective. Yeah, it was a very idiosyncratic choice on my part where I just decided I'm going to write about people I admire who I think are really interesting and have, and are not just gifted money makers. And sometimes, and so I interviewed more than 40 people specifically for the book. And then there were all of the other people I'd interviewed over the last 25 years. So I had an enormous number of people to choose from. And there were some people that I ended up not writing about who I think would have been extraordinary. Um, and maybe I just didn't have the kind of depth of material, or maybe, you know, there were one or, there were one or two people like, I write about Bill Miller throughout the book and someone asked the other day, like, how come you, you didn't write a whole chapter about Bill? And, and Bill is really extraordinary. And I've interviewed him for something like 90 hours over the, right. over the years. And I think that was the one case where I had so much material that I actually, I was kind of defeated by it. And I was like, I need to come back to this and spend six months writing about Bill. And even though I've written about him a lot, 
And I was already two years late on my on my book deadline. Uh, my editor was starting to get, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, and um, and I kept writing more. I mean, I kept sure. even after I had handed in the book and it was approved and accepted, and they were really happy with it. I then I then just turned in that ten thousand word section on notes on additional sources and resources that we just dis discussed. My editor was like, "Well, I think I can ask for more paper and to expand the book. Let me see." Let you know. <laughs> and then I I wrote an introduction. I wrote the introduction last, which was long. Sure. And I and I jammed in loads more interviews there. So I just kept adding mm -hmm. stuff, and so. So Bill Miller is the one person where I think I really wish I had had time and space to write 10, 15,000 words. And I will, I, I'll write about him later. I mean, well, I still write about him a lot. We've, we actually, one of the, I submitted, or I asked people on, on Twitter, what, what would you like to hear about? And the most common question I got was, is there going to be a sequel? Huh. Because I think, I think there's a lot of demand out there to turn this into almost a, a market wizard style series. So uh, I think thanks. you've got, I think you have plenty of room to do another one of these or maybe two or three more at least. Yeah, there are extraordinary people still to write about. And, you know, I had extraordinary interviews, say, with someone like Jeff Gundlach, where I spent about mm -hmm. three hours with Jeff Gundlach. And he has an incredible mind. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to write up more length about someone like Jeff. He's a brilliant guy. And I didn't. But I, I don't know. To some degree, I was writing very much about people who embodied certain ideas um, mm -hmm. that I thought were incredibly helpful. And so there, there, there are two different ways of going about this that I can think of. Um, so if you start, if you apply cloning and you start to say, okay, let me look at other books that are extraordinary, that I should be reverse engineering. You start to look at books by people like Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Oliver Sacks, um, Atul Gawande, these really good writers. So I did this where I was looking at, okay, how are they exploring ideas? And so there's one approach where you write a profile and then the ideas kind of come out of that, which is what someone like Oliver Sacks, who's really wonderful, does in, in books like the, An Anthropologist in Mars, uh, on, on Mars, I think. And then there's this other approach that someone like Gladwell has, where it's more thematic. You have an idea like the tipping point and then you uh, will blink and then you illustrate it with individual stories, companies' stories, stuff like that. And that was sort of the way that I went in the end. Um, and so everyone I was writing about illustrated an idea. I was, I was writing about this idea of reducing standard stupidities mm -hmm. or the idea of simplicity. But in each case, there was a kind of anchor character who illustrated it. And then there were several other people um, or several other people who are sort of more minor players. But in any of those cases, the minor players were so interesting that they easily could have been major players. So that, that was kind of excruciating in some ways. And, sure. and you feel a kind of sense of betrayal almost if you're not putting in people who are, who are extraordinary. I, I mean, there, there are people like Francis Chu, for example, who I wrote about in The Great Minds of Investing, who I mentioned briefly in this book, it's just really remarkable. And I, I mean, I interviewed him in, in Canada for this book. I, I mean, I spent significant time with him. He's remarkable. Uh, and he's got an incredible story. So I'd, I'd like to write about him in greater depth. Then there are people like, um, um, <laughs> I don't know, like I, like I spoke to someone like Lee Lu, uh, who's extraordinary. 
And then he kind of decided, I don't really want to be ripped, you know, quoted on the record. And so, you know, I hope that I'll get to write about Li Lu down the road. I think he's extraordinary, fascinating guy, brilliant mind, brilliant investor. Um, so there are things where it kind of got away from you because they weren't sure. as open. And then there were a few people who just wouldn't talk to me. Um, mm -hmm. There were people um, who you would ask for an interview and they'd say yes. And then, they, they, you know, so, so what I just ended up doing was just writing about people I thought embodied really powerful ideas. So someone like Howard Marks, for example, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd interviewed him for the, for the Great Minds of Investing, and we talked about this idea of mujo, of impermanence, mm -hmm. um, which is an idea he got while he was at Wharton and was studying Japanese studies. And I had this sense that this is ungodly important, that, that the idea of change, of, imper of impermanence, is such a profoundly important idea within investing, but it runs through everything. And because I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with studying Buddhism and, and other areas of spirituality, I could see that it ran through everything. And so I really wanted to pull apart. And I was another kind of three hours interviewing Howard on top of the time that I'd spent before. And then I would interview him again. And then I'd fact check with him, which was another probably two hours or something. And so, and he's got such a beautiful and lucid mind that you're really getting to explore that theme in depth. And so it was more, it was more driven by the theme than the individual, except in a couple of cases where I would, I would get access to say Nick Sleep, who had never talked really to anyone. And you'd gradually be getting his trust. And you'd, you'd start to think there's something so profound and so interesting about what he and he and, and Zach, his partner figured out that I just want to go big on them and just write about them in this chapter. Well, that's a really interesting point. So why do you think they, uh, here's my pet theory as to why, well, I, I know why people would say yes to doing it because they obviously did, you did build up that trust. But then I, I ran this past one of the subjects of your book, who I, I won't name, obviously, hmm. but my pet theory was that if you say yes to doing a book like this, it's for one of three reasons. It's either because you're trying to continue to build your brand and expand your business and, and kind of build things up from that perspective, which in a good way, right? Not in a salesmanship hmm. kind of way. You either think that there's a misconception out there about yourself and you want to set the record straight, or you're coming at it genuinely as a teacher and trying to pass on the lessons that you've learned, or all three, right? I mean, frankly, if it had been me, and, and when I take on certain projects like this podcast, frankly, it's it's a combination of all three of those for me. So do you think that's right, or do you think I'm missing something? Yeah, and I think I think sometimes it's just it's just trust. You see whether the person um is out to understand you. And, and there's, there's one extraordinary investor who said to me afterwards, a remarkable investor and, and has a beautiful mind. And we had dinner a few weeks after the book came out. And he said to me, he was basically saying, I'm really moved by the book. And he said, I am, he said, I don't feel like anyone ever really understood my mental models until now. And I didn't realize yeah. how somebody who's extremely wealthy, extremely bright, extremely admired, has gone through life not feeling like people had really understood him. And I think that's a kind of lonely place to be where you're brilliant and you're surrounded by people who are not as brilliant as you. Right. And someone has come along and has taken your ideas that you really cherish really seriously and really tried to explain 
this is what I've learned about the world and about how markets work and how life works. And I, I think when you're deeply engaged in the process of trying to share lessons that are true, people smell it. They smell where if, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm doing the interview and it's clear that my mind is on my brand or my success or something like that, I think people smell it. And if I'm in the interview and I'm saying, I've had this failure in my life, I've had this setback that's been really painful. And, and I can see that you've had these setbacks and failures and public embarrassments in your life. And I'm just wondering, how the hell do you deal with it? Like, yeah. where do you get your resilience? Where do you get your stress? Because when I went through this, this is how I felt. And I'm like, and, and they can tell whether, whether you're pursuing truth. And so I, 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 when I wrote The Great Minds of Investing, I interviewed Michael O'Brien, the photographer, to write an introduction in which I would talk about him. And he's, he gave me a really fascinating account of how he takes photographs of people like, um, you know, Charlie Munger and, and Buffett and all of these giants. And he said to me, he's just deeply engaged. He said during a photo shoot, he might take 200 shots and he doesn't, he doesn't really talk. He'll just sort of motion to move to the left or to move to the right or lift up their chin or something. He doesn't let them smile. And he said, because he's so intensely engaged, they're engaged. Hmm. And I, I think that's, that for me was a kind of revelation. I was thinking, oh, that's kind of what I do with writing or interviewing. Yeah. I think I just sure. really care. And I think people feel that. And so I was surprised with someone like Lee Lu, because I think Lee Lu um, doesn't have the ego to say, well, yeah, I need to get publicity and he doesn't need to build his brand and he doesn't need to gather assets. So, so there's something kind of wonderful about the fact sure. that he didn't want to talk on the record, that it's like he's, he's got his ego under control. But on the other hand, I sort of feel when you've got to that position, and you're as smart as he is and as wise as possible, there's a really strong argument for tilting towards just being a teacher and just saying, let me share with you what I've learned. And so, I mean, that's why I would love to write about someone like that down the road, because I think he's just got extraordinary ideas. And I don't know, I had a lunch recently with Yen Liao, who I'd never met before, who someone, someone introduced me to. And again, I'm like, there's a guy who just has a lot to teach. It's just a really really smart, thoughtful, wise person. And so those are those are the people I tend to be really drawn to, who are not just really good money managers, but uh, but have have thought really deeply about what it means to have a successful life and 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 how, how you deal with difficult times and how you deal with your own mental glitches. And th- right. those are the sort of people I'm really interested in. No, I, I agree. And that, that raises a really interesting question because as I was reading the book, one of the things that, that came back to me was I was already familiar with pretty much all the characters. I was familiar with a lot of the basic concepts. I was not familiar with all of the biographical details, which I thought was always interesting because when you are really engaged and really interested in people, you inevitably keep asking more and more questions and you paint this much richer picture of their whole lives. And so I would say, Richer, absolutely. You're going to learn things in this book about how to be successful. Wiser, it's it's packed with all sorts of nuggets and, and philosophical tidbits and, and ideas that are going to make you wiser, I think. But I do wonder, you pointed out several times, I mean, the divorce rate seemed somewhat high amongst the people you interviewed. They all face setbacks. Look, we all face setbacks in life, right? And, and whether it's divorce or a health emergency or whatever. I mean, that's all going to happen. But do you think that the people you interviewed were actually happier? Or do you think this was more about 
the setbacks that they were able to overcome and ultimately end up in a happier place, even if they weren't necessarily happier along the way. Yeah, there's an interesting nuance here. I, Jason Zweig, who I'm close to, um, I, I think his one objection to the book was, was he's like, yeah, I've met so many um, money managers over the years who were miserable and they're chain smokers and that. <laughs> and he's like, I, I, you know, and they're divorced and stuff. And he's like, I just don't buy it. Um, and I, we never really sat down and hashed this out. We, we just yeah, sort of talked about it over emails because we're in a book group together, among other things. So usually we're talking yeah. about like, 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 uh, uh, you know, fa famous novelists, because um, it's it's entirely a book group devoted to fiction, and and, and it, it, we're all writers in the group pretty much, and so, um, so yeah, I I take that point that um, there's a lot of unhappiness among the investment business, but that wasn't really what I was trying to say that these people are happier. What I was really trying to say is that they point you. Right. when you study their lives and you unpack yeah. their lives it points you towards what makes for a happy and abundant life and so when you when you look at someone like tom gainer or manish pabrai or arnold vandenberg or charlie munger or nick sleep you get a sense of why their lives are deeply fulfilled or why they tend to be happy or what 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 they do that kind of works and when you see people so, so so, for example, think think of someone like Charlie Munger saying. So Charlie's been through a lot, right? I mean, Charlie yeah. Charlie lost his first child to leukemia, which is devastating. He had yeah. divorce. He lost his eye. I mean, it's not like I mean, Ch Charlie's life has been an extraordinary, an extraordinary success, but it's certainly not been a straight upward trajectory. Right. But Charlie said something that was very powerful to me, which I quote in that chapter, where he said the idea of thinking of life as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to behave well or badly is a very, very good idea. And what he also said, which I, I didn't quote, was he said, and it's an especially good idea when you become old, because those adversities come thick and fast, because you start to see your, your health deteriorating, you see your friends dying, I and mean, it's very painful. And so that idea of looking at life as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity to behave well or badly is a very profound observation that points you towards having a wiser approach to life. Or think of when I when I asked him what what we can learn from him and Warren about what it takes to have a happy life, he immediately started talking about relationships. And he said, I've I've been a good partner to Warren, and he's been a marvelous partner to me. And he said, our system is simple. He said, to to have a good partner, be a good partner. Right. And likewise with, with marriage, if you want a good spouse, deserve one. Those again, those are incredibly wise insights. If you, if you really think deeply about those ideas, they can change your life because this is a distillation by one of the smartest guys alive of what he's figured out about what actually makes for happiness. About, um, about the importance of relationships. And if you apply that idea in other areas of your life about to, 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 have, to have a good spouse, deserve one, you start to think, or, or to, be a good, uh, to, to have a good partner, be one. Then you start to think, okay, so, so if I complain about my friends and I think I can't believe my friends aren't that good, they're flaky or they're not there for me or whatever, you start to think, well, let me be a good friend. Let me be a better friend. 
And I see certain people who are extraordinary friends. I'm close to Guy Spear, for example. Guy, Guy has been just a magnificent friend to me over so many years. There are so many ways in which Guy has helped me. He's taught me a great deal about what it means to be a good friend. Um, uh, that's So just that one idea of focusing on changing your own behavior instead of judging other people and demanding, you know, looking at yourself as a victim and thinking, I can't believe people don't treat me properly. You know, right. be a good partner, be a good friend, be a good son, good, good you know, that's... Um, I hesitated because I was about to say be a good brother. And the reason I hesitated is because I'm like, yeah, I'm not that good a brother. You know, I love my brother, but I'm not that good a brother. You know, we're 3000 miles away and we don't talk yeah. often enough. And, and so just that one filter makes me think, God, I need to spend more time talking to my brother who I love, but who I don't spend enough time with. And so, so this stuff, it points you towards what will make you happier. And, I, and, yeah. and one of the things, sorry to interrupt you, one, one of the things I was trying to say in that final chapter in the epilogue, which really explores this idea of, of what actually constitutes a happy and successful and abundant life, is it occurred to me that you can have all of the money in the world, all of the toys, everything, but if you don't have equanimity, you're in deep trouble. Yep. And so just that idea of building peace of mind which I discussed through people like Bill Miller, who, who obviously drew a great deal from, from um, Seneca and Epictetus and, and Marcus Aurelius. Um, that idea of how you build peace of mind and equanimity is critically important. And, and, and so again, that points at what, what will make for a happy life. Then likewise, I end the book by writing about Arnold Vandenberg, who I describe basically as the most successful human being I've met in the investment right. business. And one of the reasons Arnold is so extraordinary is that he took control of his inner landscape. And so he focused a lot on how he speaks to himself, on his subconscious mind, but he also focused tremendously on how he treats other people. And so part of what I was trying to explain there, well, not really, not really explain, but show, was here's a, here's a guy whose life is tremendously successful, A, because of his inner landscape because he gains control over his thoughts, but B, because he's incredibly sharing and kind and generous and decent. And that that's me thinking through for myself, what do I need to learn from Arnold? How, how do I become more like Arnold? You know, Arnold did things like literally when I, I, I spent probably two and a half days with him in Texas interviewing him for the book. Um, he literally, the thing that, that he did right before I left was, was hypnotize me. And so I'm lying down on the floor of Arnold's office in Austin, and he's and he's playing uh, and he's playing Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and he's got this mat on the floor, and he's like turned his office into into you know this spot that's kind of conducive so that he can hypnotize me, so that he can basically implant in my mind um, more positive thoughts because he's pretty aware of the fact that, you know, I have this inner, inner interior monologue that's probably pretty um, uh, pretty brutal towards myself. And so he's, he's actually helped over the last several years to kind of rewire my way of thinking. What's, what's in it for Arnold to do that? It's right. just, here's this 80, 81-year-old guy who's just purely kind and decent 
And I, I don't think he's doing that because he hopes I'm going to write more positively about him. I, I, he, he at one point tried to get me to take him out of the great minds of investing because he's like, my returns haven't been good lately. I don't really think I should be in this book. So he's he's not trying to improve his his brand or anything like that. Right. He's just a really honest guy who helps people. And so so for me, this is this is this is why I think you can learn an enormous amount from the greatest investors about what will point you towards a happier life. And that's that's different from saying uh, these guys are rich, ergo, they're happy, which would be incredibly stupid and, and, and ignorant on my part. But I think when I look at someone like Monish, for example, I do think there's a kind of irrepressible joy to Monish, even though he's been through difficult times. Um, and I think part of that irrepressible joy comes from the fact that he set up this, this charitable foundation, Dakshana, yeah. that's dragging thousands and thousands of children out of poverty who are incredibly bright, but come from underprivileged families. And, and so there again, there's a deep lesson there, which is that if you want to have a happy life, there has to be some degree of giving back, of sharing. And so he was cloning the sharing from Warren. Warren's one of the smartest guys alive. Warren figured out that if he, I mean, I remember going to Omaha one year and sitting next to Guy and, and, and Monish and Warren saying, you know, if I had six houses, you think I'd be happier? He's like, it just doesn't compute. I'd be less happy. And so it's not that Warren is, you know, uh, uh, the perfect role model in every way. I mean, sure. it's not that Charlie is the perfect role model in every way or Monish, you know, they all have their flaws and foibles and idiosyncrasies. Um, but I think they point you towards this idea that there has to be something beyond your own ego. They, they're all extraordinary teachers, extraordinary sharers of wisdom. They share their wealth. And I, I think there's a deep truth there about what constitutes a happy and abundant life. And so I'm thinking through those ideas myself. And I'm thinking, you know, I was thinking when I was, when I was writing about Monish and Dakshana. So I, I give a little bit of money to Dakshana every year. And I think it's an extraordinary thing. I tend, I try to sponsor like one kid basically. So, so, so just for several years, because I, I visited the, the schools that Dakshana funds um, where students are in India and they're, they're extraordinary. And so I'm thinking, well, so I'm, 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 I'm not going to be a billionaire as Monish is probably going to end up being. So, you know, can I really make a difference? And, you know, Monish is going to drag thousands of kids out of poverty. But I'm like, what if I, what if I could drag a hundred kids out of mm -hmm. poverty over the course of my lifetime? I'd feel pretty good about that. And I have no idea whether I'll be able to or whether that's, you know, maybe there are other things I'll end up doing. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know. But when you see someone like Monich behaving that way, I think what you want to do is say, um, what am I going to do? What's my contribution? I mean, Dakshana is this wonderful Sanskrit word meaning gift. And so you have to say to yourself, what's my gift? What am I, what am I giving back? What, what's, what's my opportunity to share? And I'm, I'm not saying this in a sanctimonious way. Um, I actually think what's really interesting about the greatest investors is because they're so brutally pragmatic, um, they, they look at this stuff in pretty unsentimental terms. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I, my life is going to be much happier if I share more. And 
And so I, so I don't know, I see this great wisdom in people like Arnold or Tom Gaynor or Nick Sleep. I mean, I talked to Nick Sleep a few weeks ago for a couple of hours and Nick's a really wonderful human being, I think, very special human being. And one of the things he's, he's thinking through at the moment is what's, what's the way that I can give away money that will have the most lasting impact on society? What will do the maximum amount of good? So one of the things he's thinking about is, should I really be focused, say, on early intervention in kids' lives? Because if you can help kids early in their lives, the, the ramifications are so enormous. It, it, it helps them on every level and helps society on every level. So he's really, so he's applying this brilliant brain that figured out how to crack the code of the markets to try to crack the code of how to, how to give away money in a way that creates maximum benefit for society. So when I look at Nick, I think he's a happy bloke who has good relationships with his family and his friends and he's admirable and he's got a sense of honor. And, and I think probably he likes himself partly because of the way he behaves that he's not, there isn't a sort of secret sense of sort of shame and guilt that he's all he's doing is just make an enormous amount of money and then, and then, you know, buying Ferraris with it. And I don't have any objection to the buying of Ferraris. I, you know, look, I look at Monish's Ferrari, it's beautiful. Uh, um, and it's great that money she's able to do that and lift thousands of kids out of poverty. It's wonderful. But I think it, it, it makes you think much more deeply about what, what's going to constitute a worthwhile and worthy and valuable life. And I, I love the idea from, from Nick Sleep and, and Kay Sakaria of destination analysis, where they, they applied this to companies, but it applies equally to your own life, where where you say, okay, what's what's a desirable destination for Costco or Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway? And are they doing the things that are going to get them to that desirable destination? And that kind of analysis led Nick and Zach to have, you know, 40% of their fund in Amazon, which they paid $30 a share for. I mean, you know, it's an enormous investment um, that worked out incredibly well. And, and Zach, when I'd last talked to him, had 70% of his personal portfolio in Amazon because he's just never sold any of it. But they they apply that same way of thinking to their own lives. So Nick would say, what's a desirable destination for my life? So if I so if I think of um I if I think of what I'm going to be at 80, he's like, do I want to have four houses and a jet? and a yacht? Or do I want to look back and think, I managed the money in an honorable, high quality way. I treated my partners in a high quality way with integrity. I gave away the money in a high quality way that created maximum value for society. I had good relationships with my family. That's That just so clearly points you towards a happier life. And I, I love the fact that one of the things that Nick did when he, when he quit the investment business, he went, on like a 36-day car rally in this old Mercedes Pagoda, I think, with his daughter Jess going, you know, through Siberia and Mongolia. What an amazing thing to be able to spend 36 days with your daughter driving through, you know, from Mongolia, I think it was from Beijing to Paris, uh, through through Mongolia and stuff. So that gives you a sense of what actually constitutes a rich and abundant life. It's like, he's not taking a vow of poverty. He still has this beautiful Mercedes Pagoda and these other, uh, the, you know, it's, it's fine to have the, uh, sure. the precious possessions, 
but it's the relationship with his daughter that's really precious. And look, I'm I'm the father of a 23-year-old son and a 20-year-old daughter. And that for me has been very because then suddenly I'm like, if I'm if I I I've worked way too hard for many years, right? Like I I I edited the Asian edition of Time magazine and then I edited the European, Middle East, and African edition of Time. And so you can imagine it's a weekly magazine, it's all consuming. And so I kind of neglected my kids. Um, and, and then I was working on books and I'm maniacally obsessive. And so again, you sort of, it's like, no, don't play piano. It's too noisy. I'm trying to focus. And then gradually by thinking about what I could learn from people like Arnold or people like Nick Sleep, like, no, if my, if my daughter calls in the middle of the day, you know, she's at college now, she often FaceTimes several times a week. I, I drop everything to talk sure. to her because what is more important? And so, so this is, so, so this is a long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's a really important question. It's not, it's not about, yes, look at these people, they're all rich and successful and so they're happy. Right. That's nothing to do with it. Right. But what I hope your listeners will do is if they, if they read the book, really think about what, what can I take from Arnold or, or Monish or Charlie Munger and say, yeah, yeah, that points me, that points me towards um, practices that are going to make me happier. Mm-hmm. And I, you're, you're talking to some of the smartest people on earth, right? I mean, if you've got Ed Thorpe saying to you, here's, here's a guy who beat the casino at blackjack, beat the casino right. at roulette, had a hedge fund that didn't lose money in any quarter in 20 years. And if I'm saying to him, so how would you play the game of life? If you're, you're the ultimate game player, how do you stack the odds in your, in your favor in life? And, and the first thing he says is, well, who, who you spend your time with is right. really the most important thing of all. And here, here's a guy who, who was married for over 50 years, right, before his wife died, if I remember rightly. I mean, Charlie Munger read, read um, Ed Thorpe's memoir. And I remember he, he said to Monish, it's a love story. That's a really interesting interpretation. Mm-hmm. At some level, it's a love story. And so that, that I take really seriously when I, when, I see, when I see Ed Thorpe, who's one of the two or three brightest people I've ever met, probably, For saying sure. it's all about relationships. That's like, oh, let me reorient. And so then suddenly I think, well, my book group, for example, is not a side issue and a distraction. It's an opportunity to build friendships with really wonderful human beings. And my FaceTime calls with my daughter or, or my, my rarer calls with my son, who's really busy, who's teaching at, at Success Academy, the school, the school system that Joe, Joe Greenblatt set up. Mm-hmm. The, those are not distractions. That's the, the essence of a happy and abundant life. And that's, that's been a really, really powerful reorientation for me. Interesting. Well, somehow we're bumping up already. I know you have another appointment. We don't have too much time left, but I got a couple of great questions that I don't want to skip over. Um, one that I thought was really interesting was how will the next generation of investors differ from those in richer, wiser, happier? I mean, for a good reason, I don't think there's anybody in the book who's not at least in their 50s or 60s. I don't think you know five to 10 years is a blink of an eye. So you need to have a longer track record to really evaluate their, their body work. But so if you were to do this book if you hadn't done it now and you were to do it in 20 years, how do you think they would be different? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a provocative question. It's a very interesting question. And I, 
I can't say I really know at all. And when I when I think one of the things that I started to worry about when I was writing the book was I don't really grapple with the whole idea of machines and mm. and how this enormous amount of computing power changes the game. And and I'm inclined to write about people who are um, very bright, very contrarian, somewhat cons- concentrated investors. Sure. And I started to worry of what what if that game is just kind of ending what if that's you know and and you always you always worry that great approaches get kind of arbitraged away it's a difficult game and i i talked to bill miller last week we had a conversation together uh, uh, where i was asking him I, I said to him at one point so the essence of what you've done really it, it, even though you were investing in companies like Amazon, Dell, and AOL and stuff early on, you were always buying things for less than they were worth. And he's like, yeah, yeah, actually it's a nuance beyond that. Um, I was buying, that's a kind of classical value investing approach that, that you know, um, Bill Nigren and Mario Cabelli and all these guys take. And it, it, and he's like, it's great. It's like, yeah, you're buying, you're buying companies at discount to what they're worth now. And he said, I've been trying to buy companies at a massive discount to what they will be worth with a margin of safety. And so he was able to look at companies like Google or Amazon and say, this could be enormous and I can buy it with a reasonable margin of safety. Um, and so that's a really nice nuance. And that that made me think you're constantly having to change. You're constantly having to adapt. You can't just say, these are the rules. This is how it works. And and that's part of what makes this such a difficult and interesting game. There, there are these enduring ideas, like, like, like I, I write in the chapter on simplicity about Joel Greenblatt saying, "Look, I, I, I just, I just value a business and buy it for less than it's worth." And he says, "If, if, if I have a disciplined way of valuing companies, then." I'm going to be able to take care uh, to take advantage of other people's bipolar emotions, and I'm going to be able to buy bargains, and I'll do well in the long run. But even that has become really difficult in a market sure. that's very uh, richly valued. That's very difficult. Well, how do you, how do you deal with cryptocurrencies and the fact yeah. that they've they've just turned everything on its head? And and you know, Bill Miller was explaining to me the other day that it's it's really all about supply and demand, and there's just there's just so much more demand than there is supply for something like Bitcoin that 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 demand is going to grow, and that's really interesting to me that you're having you're having to understand the rules that exist, the lessons how to how to play the game. You're having to you're having to decode what people like Buffett and Munger and Ben Graham and Howard Marks and Joe Greenblatt figured out, but then you also need to have the flexibility to say, yeah, and the world's changing and and what worked yesterday may not work tomorrow, and I, I think that's that's a kind of that, that's a kind of excruciating reality and challenge, and it's what makes it all so interesting. But as but as Howard Mark says in the chapter on everything changing, he says you have to accommodate yourself to reality as it is, not sure. to how you wish it would be. Yeah. And so I think this this ability to learn what's worked in the past, understand what's worked in the past. But to have the flexibility to hold your convictions lightly enough that you can say, "Yeah, but maybe that's maybe maybe it's different now." And I, I see that in every area of life. If 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 you think about it, what we're doing now 
this podcast interview, we wouldn't have been doing this two or three years ago. If I were, if I were talking about a book then, I would have been hoping to sit in a bookstore with sort of, I would have been, I would have been white knuckling it, hoping that 20, 30, 40 people would show up and I would have read, read them a chunk of the book and then answered questions. With this book, all I've done is basically move my desk to move my chair to one side of my desk and set up a microphone and chat with people all around the world. I chatted with someone in Australia the other day. I'm talking to someone in Israel. That's an unbelievable thing. Yeah, and so sure. I could sit here ruining the fact that because of COVID, we, we couldn't meet in bookstores and the like. Or I could just be like, what an amazing thing that we live in, a, in, a, in an era where you and I can chat over Zoom wherever we are in the world. And, and so that idea of just accommodating to change um, and not, not insisting that it must be a particular way. I, 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 think, I think that points you in the direction of, of where we're, where we're, where we're going to go with the next generation of investors. It's just saying, I don't know. This is going to shift in ways that I can't understand. And I'm going to have to have the agility to adapt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to be a continuous learner like Buffett and Munger. The fact that Buffett could invest in, in Apple, a tech stock, and make the, the most lucrative investment of his career in his late 80s. The, the principles previous... don't change, but every 10 years, he's had to adapt the playbook, right? And that seems like exactly. a reasonable expectation for the next generation. Exactly. And so I, I think the, the successful investors in the next generation, the enduringly successful investors, will have to be continuous learners, right? Who continue to adapt because you, you can succeed over a decade. You can have, I mean, I, I remember Bill Miller saying to me uh, multiple times, slightly, slightly irritatedly, that uh, pe- pe- people who were right once in a row during the financial crisis would often get kind of celebrated. And he's yeah. like, you know, the challenge, I mean, Bill, Bill has now done this for 40 years. That's an extraordinary yeah. thing to have adapted from being, you know, a kind of deep value, kind of contrarian, classical value investor to being someone who's, who's now, I mean, he's, he, he, he told me that he's the largest individual shareholder in Amazon, whose who's yeah. name is not Bezos or, or, right. or Bezos's ex-wife. And likewise, his average purchase price for Bitcoin is basically before this year when he made another big purchase, basically $500 per coin. Um, and he started buying at around $200 per Bitcoin. And it's what, 43000 now, 44000 Think of the adaptability that, that Bill has to be able to keep cracking the problem in new ways. I mean, now he's what, 70, 71? Just the flexibility of that mind is a, that's that's kind of a, that's a wonderful. Uh, that's a wonderful model, I think, for all of us to have that kind of. I mean, I you know we're never going to have the IQ points, but uh, I mean, Bill is just seriously smart. But to have that ability to continually update the way that you view the world, that that's an that's an astonishing role model for me. I totally agree, and that's an absolutely powerful point that I think comes through loud and clear in the book. That's a great place to end it, William. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Certainly recommend the book and uh, wish you all the best. Hope to chat again soon. This has been Thank a lot you. Of fun. I would love that. Thanks for having all me right. on. It's, it's been Thanks a great again. Day. Take all care. Right. Take care. Cheers. Bye.